Indeed, O oh God, we have discovered that there are no promises that have ever been made us that compare to those that you have committed your very character to. A promise of forgiveness full, free, and complete to those who embrace your Savior. A promise of eternal life. A promise of an, e an eternity where there is no more sin. There's no more tears. There is no more pain. A, a, an eternity in which we will enjoy the great benefits of the work of Jesus Christ. Those benefits that we have begun to enjoy now, O oh God. We come to you this morning as a, a room full of prodigals. We are constantly erring and straying from the path of righteousness. And yet we find you running after us, chasing after prodigals, and clothing them with robes that were not theirs but yours. Oh God, clothe me now. Grant me that robe now. Might I live in that robe? Might I die in that robe? Might I stand before you in that robe? Might I, might I spend eternity in the robe of righteousness provided for me by the God of all grace and glory? Father, nothing, nothing compares to what you have granted us in Christ Jesus. And we ask now, O oh God, that what arises out of the hearts of your people will give you pleasure, that it will befit the glory and the transcendence of the thrice holy God. And that, Father, when, we've, when we leave here in this brief hour, we will leave as people who will never be the same. Changed forever. People who have been scarred and marked by the Holy Spirit of God. Oh, Heavenly Father, grant that our worship might please you and change us. Thank you for the privilege now of giving towards the ongoing advancement of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Father, the privilege is all ours. Accept our gifts. We bring them in Jesus' name. Amen. Take your Bibles, if you will, and open them to the book of Acts, chapter 2. You follow as I read uh, only the first four verses of the second chapter. Acts chapter 2 at verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire. And one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it endures forever. Our birthday as a local church is two weeks from today. On February the 10th of 1991, we had our first worship service as a congregation. My text on that day was Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. 
The title of the sermon, I'm sure you'll all remember it. The title of the sermon was A Gentle Shower of a Woman's Heart. The story about the, the lady of the night who broke in and anointed Jesus' feet and washed his feet with her, dried them with, his, with her hair. And Simon the Pharisee, thinking if he were a prophet, he would really know what kind of woman was touching him. That was uh, our birthday, February the 10th, and we'll celebrate our 11th year in existence two weeks from today. Our first Sunday in that other sanctuary that we just left was February the 20th of 1994. Our text this morning describes the birthday of another church, but not the birthday of a church, but the birthday of the church. I don't know exactly the day, the date on which this took place. I know it happened in the month of Sivan, which is, according to a Jewish calendar, corresponding to our May-June. It happened uh, the 50th day after the Sabbath of the Passover week. It happened 10 days after the Ascension. But beyond that, I can't tell you exactly the day. But that was the day that the Church of Jesus Christ was born. Now, ladies and gentlemen, my purpose is this morning, or my purpose this morning is pretty simple. What I'd like to do simply is underscore the, um, the momentous significance of what is being described here, and then make some applications for us, and then we're finished. So I want to do that firstly, that is, I want to do, uh, underscore the momentous importance and profundity of this event by just making two observations that I, that I think, uh, that I hope you'll find helpful. But first of all, let me start with a comparison. I want to show you something. Uh, keep your Bibles open. We love to have those things open in our laps as we, uh, as we gather around God's Word. But you will notice in verses 9 through 11 of chapter 1 that um, the, the group had just experienced and witnessed the ascension. That is what is described in verses 9 through 11 of chapter 1. And then, after verse 11, verses 12 through 14, that group of people, there was about 120 of them, we're told in verse 15, but that group of people, about 120 of them, gathered in a place and um, began to pray, we're told, in verses 12 through 14. Uh, having witnessed the ascension... Their response to having witnessed their ascent, the ascension of Christ was to go to a room, sit down, pray, and wait. That was a, an obedient response. They had been told to do that in verse 4 of chapter 1. And so, this group of 120, having witnessed the, uh, the ascension of our Lord, they all gather as one group, they head to one room, and they begin to sit and pray for a matter of ten days. In fact, that same group is the group that is mentioned as being gathered in chapter 2 in our text. Um, they are doing nothing but sitting. The posture of heroes. Somebody defined Christians rather negatively this way as being those who sit and think, but mostly sit. But gang, um, their sitting is an obedient sitting. They were told to go wait, and that's exactly what they're doing. You have described here a group of people who are, who are prayerful, who are obedient, 
who are faithful, doing exactly what Jesus had told them to do. Waiting. Now, now if you'll notice in chapter 2, beginning at verse 5, I want to read all that for you. But in uh, chapter 2, verse 5 through verse 13, something has, something is different, vastly changed. Why? That same group of people is out on the streets. They are banging around on the streets of Jerusalem and, and all the people who had gathered for the Feast of Pentecost, all these people from Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Ponta, they're, they're wondering, what in the world is going on here? What has happened to these people? What is happening? So my point is, you have a group of people who were sitting, and now you have an aggressive group of people out advancing the kingdom of Christ. And in between those two things is our text. Um, it is the event recorded for us in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, that made the difference in these people. Uh, it, it's the thing that brought empowerment and gave birth to an institution of which you and I are a part. The church. The church is born at Pentecost. And our text describes... Something that Jesus gave the church so that she might be used by him to continue his great redemptive purposes. Now, that's not really my point. Um, I think you could have figured out with a, a cursory reading of, of, of the text that, my goodness, here these people are one thing in chapter 1, they're an entirely different thing in chapter 2, verses 11, and, and in the middle there is this event called Pentecost that has really changed them. Uh, that's not my point. My point is this. In that group of 120 people uh, would be included uh, the 12 apostles. Actually, there'll be 11 now because Judas is dead. Uh, included in that group would be uh, the 70 that were sent out two by two. Um, included in that group would be a group of people who had witnessed the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension. There would be, in that group of 120 people, people who had touched Jesus. Thomas, who had stuck his finger in the nail holes in his hands. People who had been used by God previously to cast out demons and heal people. And after the ascension, instead of thrusting them out, those people, the foremost spokesmen of the Christian church, before they are thrust out into the streets to change the world, Jesus says, you're not ready. You're not ready. You're not, you're ill-equipped for this job. I know your name is Peter, and I know your name is James and John, and I know you did this, and I know you did this, and I know what you've seen, I know what you've witnessed, I know what you've experienced, but you're not ready yet. Don't you dare go out there and try to do something in my name. You go to Jerusalem and wait, because you're just not ready for this. There is something else that you must have before you'll do, you'll make any mark on anybody in my name. Now, ladies and gentlemen, Jesus was speaking that to Peter. He was speaking it to John, James, Thomas. You guys, you guys have witnessed a lot. You've experienced a lot. 
but you're not ready. You need to, you need to back off, sit down, and wait because there's something else you need. Now, that's my first point. That's the, my, my first way of underscoring the momentous significance of what is described in verses 1 through 4 in chapter 2. Even Peter was not ready to do something for Jesus until after this. I, I don't know about the rest of you, but I never witnessed the resurrection. I read about it and I preached about it. I never saw Jesus ascend. I was never used to, to heal people. But Peter wasn't ready. And if Peter wasn't ready, why should we think we are? That's my first observation. Here's my second. To, to see this one, you're going to have to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 12. It's a cryptic little statement that Jesus makes, which, which I find enormously interesting. But um, I want you to see it. It's in Luke chapter 12. Jesus is speaking, and he says in verse 49, that is Luke 12, 49, we find this. Jesus is speaking, and he says, I came to send fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled, but... I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how distressed I am <coughs> till it is accomplished. Now, guys, um, Jesus says, I came to this earth to do what? To send fire. <laughs> I came to send fire on the earth. And notice that very strange word, I'm distressed. Oh, says Jesus. Oh, how I wish it were already accomplished. But it's not. It's not accomplished. Because I cannot do my mightiest work just yet. Because I have a baptism. And of course, he's referring there to his crucifixion. I can't send fire on the earth until that baptism is accomplished. Oh, how distressed I am about that. Oh, how I wish we could go ahead and get to that. Because that is my mightiest work. But I am constrained. I am limited. I am held back. I am bound back. Because there's still something that has to be done. But once that's finished, then, <laughs> then I'm going to send fire on the earth. Have you ever noticed Jesus' statement, if you can't find this, this is in John chapter 16, where, John, where, where he says concerning this uh, sending of fire, he says in John chapter 16, verse 7, he looks at his disciples and says, It is to your advantage that I go away. Why? Jesus looks at his people and says, It's to your advantage that I leave. Read on. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come. Here's my point, ladies and gentlemen. Jesus, Jesus himself, places a higher value on the Holy Spirit's work than he places on his own. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah, you think it's wonderful having me around, just wait. It is to your advantage that I go. 
Because when I go, <laughs> once I'm gone, then, then I will send fire. I'll send the helper. But right now, I'm so distressed that I can't yet do that. You see, ladies and gentlemen, what I'm suggesting is that um, Jesus had certain things that he must do before he could get to his greatest work. And having accomplished those things like crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, having accomplished those things, he now, in Acts chapter 2, makes provision for the continuation of his work by sending the long-awaited, the long-anticipated, the much-desired burden of his soul, he sends fire. It was Jesus, ladies and gentlemen. Jesus who said, you guys, Peter, James, John, and the other 117 of you, you're not ready. And by the way, I can't wait to do my greatest work. I can't do it just yet. But uh, when I do my greatest work, oh, my friend, how advantaged you will be. Now, guys, what I'm saying, just to kind of summarize those two points, is do you understand what that, that Jesus himself is underscoring the importance of what we have read in Acts chapter 2? Jesus is the one that says, your advantage right now, without the Holy Spirit, you are disadvantaged, but you're about to be advantaged. And let me tell you, Compared to what I'm doing, what he is going to do, it's going to be better for you. And I can't wait to send fire on earth. I can't wait to leave you. Because when I do then, then I will do my mightiest work. I will send fire. And by having done so, ladies and gentlemen, he has equipped the church to carry on. The, the ministry that he has begun. But without the event recorded for us in Acts chapter 2 verses 1 through 4, none of us, none of us are ready for anything. Now guys, um, what does that have to do with us? What kind of application can we possibly make? There's a couple of things that I, I think that I'd like to share with you as we move towards a conclusion. First of all, guys, the human, the, I mean, the Holy Spirit was not, was not new to human affairs. He'd been around in the Old Testament and mentioned several times. He's even mentioned in Acts chapter 1. But there was something new. There was something brand new about this, Acts 2. This was a new phase in the economy of God. And one of the new features in this new phase of the economy is this one. If you will notice with me in verse 4, and they were all. They were all, not just Peter, James, and John, and the rest of the, the, the 11. Not just the hot shots, and the, not just the spokesmen, but all of them. That whole bunch, that whole 120 of them, 
And you will notice, interestingly, that when you get to this scene in Acts, later on in Acts chapter 2, all of them, um, all of them are out there banging on doors and knocking people down with the message of the gospel. It's not just the 11 and the other 109 are um, watching them. Oh, no. No, 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 no. They all. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. All of them. When this church was born, ladies and gentlemen, everybody was a part of it. Everybody. Everybody was filled. Now, gang, you would have to be uh, somewhat sheltered to not know that this text oozes with controversy. The church is divided, as she is over, over what is being said in men here. But I am not here to argue with you over the ins and the outs of the controversy. I simply want to point out that the church owes her existence to this event. And if she is to participate in the continued work of Jesus Christ, she must have the equipment that is mentioned in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. And that means that not only the spokesman. You reckon there's 120 of y'all here this morning? That would mean all of us. All of us, ladies and gentlemen. Not just the loud, obnoxious one behind the pulpit. But all of us. Gang, in the book of Acts, we're going to see as we study it that a handful of ordinary, simple, unlettered men and women, no great names, no big money, no pedigree, no degrees, they were nobodies. And they turned their world upside down. How did they do that? How did they bring about this phenomenon of history known as the Christian church? Well, first, let me tell you how they didn't do it. They didn't do it by strategy or marketing or gimmickry. They didn't have to do some cute little worship tricks. You know, I think that the 21st century church has substituted worship tricks for the power and effusion of the Holy Spirit of God. Gang, what they had is fire and wind. And I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, those words mock us. They mock us. Fire, it seems like the evangelical world is more akin to ice than it is fire. Has the mighty rushing wind blown itself out? Gang, the world was turned upside down, not because of what these men did, but because of what God did to them and in them and for them and by them. What the church is and what she has been commissioned to do and how she does it, the whole of it, all of it stems from this action of God described for you in Acts chapter 2. You know, in all honesty... This institution known as the church should have died hundreds of years ago. There's been enough schism and enough heresy and enough error and enough failure and enough division. 
to fill volumes of history books. So why is she still alive? There's only one answer, ladies and gentlemen. Fire. God. God is active in His church via the power of the Holy Spirit. The church owes not only her, her birth, but her continuation to an alive, active God who sovereignly sweeps over a church or a nation or a region or a person with the filling of the Holy Spirit. Now, guys, again, I say to you, you've got to be awfully sheltered to not know that that filling business is awfully controversial. It's, um, it's probably the biggest part of the controversy. But I'm trying to avoid controversy. And I simply want to appeal to a couple of things. First of all, I want to appeal to our text. Just look at the text, ladies and gentlemen. Just notice that the new features of this new economy of God's work is that they all were filled. That's it. All Filled, all filled, all filled, all filled, all filled. And I also appeal to Paul's admonition in Ephesians chapter 5, where he says, by way of command, he says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And, and, and as you've heard, I'm sure, before, the Greek of that text should be something like, be ye being filled, keep on being filled, continue to be filled. This church, ladies and gentlemen, was filled so much so that when they finally got to the streets, the people in the streets thought they were drunk. No, they weren't drunk. But those people in the streets, they knew something was different about those folks. I don't know what it is. But there's something really strange about these people. Now, gang, if you are not filled, that must mean then you are empty. And I guarantee you, ladies and gentlemen, they know the difference. They know the difference between what somebody who is filled with the Holy Spirit is and what Someone isn't is like. You know, it's no wonder, I guess, that the, the non-Christian world considers the church irrelevant. Emptiness is pretty irrelevant. It is full. Oh, that we were full. Full of God and not full of self. You know, you imagine this. You, you hand a... You hand a, a, a thirsty man an empty cup. It's almost like what the church is doing. Oh, we know you got needs out there, oh, non-Christian, unchurched world. But here, drink from our empty cup. What a, what a, what a cruel tease. See if you can slake your thirst, oh, thirsty world, on an empty church. No, ladies and gentlemen, they'll never, they'll never, uh, they'll never get filled up by an empty church. 
I want you to notice also in, in the text, well, actually it's not in our text, but in Acts chapter 2, verse 11, what it is that, that full people talk about. Uh, we hear them speaking in our own tongues and wonderful, the wonderful works of God. That is, these 120 who were the spokesmen for, for the church, what were they talking about? The differences in baptism? The various millennial positions? No, ladies and gentlemen, they were caught up. They were swept away with speaking about the wonderful works of God and regeneration and, and redemption and forgiveness. And that, ladies and gentlemen, the spokesman of the church filled with the Holy Spirit, that was their message. They weren't protesting against the tyranny of Rome. They weren't deciding what resolutions they should send to their senator. They weren't uh, expressing their opinions on current affairs. No, no, no. They were caught up and swept away by the wonderful works of God. They couldn't stop talking about it. You know, ladies and gentlemen, I, I think that the spokesman of God, when people come to listen to the spokesman of God, to preachers, it's a lot like a wine tasting. Have you ever seen one of those things going on? You know, the, the, it wasn't at your table, I'm sure, but, um, uh, you know, the table next year is they ordered a bottle of wine and, and they go through this ritual, you know, to see if they want it, I guess. I've never seen anybody ever send a bottle of wine back. But, you know, they pop the cork and they sniff the cork and, you know, I said, goodness gracious. And then they, they kind of, they kind of sniff the bottle and, and then they pour a little tiny bit into a, into a glass and they kind of swirl it around and they kind of look up at the light and see, I don't know what they're looking at. See if there's any dead flies in there, I guess, you know. They swirl it around and then they, then they, they put this little bit of wine in their mouth and they go, they kind of gargle it, you know. And then they, they look at the person who brought the bottle and they say, you know, I think people listen to the spokesman of God like that. Well, how did you like him? Did you like what he said? Is that what I am? Am I some kind of fiddler on the roof? That helps you while away an hour on Sunday morning and gives you enough material to talk about over Sunday lunch. Gang, if I am to be true to who God is and you are to be true and I am to be true to you, then this is the most solemn business that you know of. Because the object of all preaching is the heart. The object of all exposition of the truth of God is seeking to divorce the heart of man from his sin and wed that heart to Jesus Christ in all of his beauty. But, for that, ladies and gentlemen, Fire is the great need. 
Our whole sense of reason, our whole sense of mission and purpose is wrapped up, ladies and gentlemen, in the baptism, the filling of the Holy Spirit among us. Without the Holy Spirit, Christian discipleship is not only inconceivable, it is utterly impossible. There can be no life without the life giver. There's no understanding without the spirit of truth. There is no fellowship without the unity of the spirit. No Christ-likeness of character apart from his fruit. And no effective witness without his power. As a body without breath is a corpse, so the church without the Holy Spirit is dead. There is to be about us, ladies and gentlemen, an inexplicable passion and my friends, that passion has nothing to do with this building, as lovely as it is. It has everything to do with fire. And so, my dear brother and sister in Christ, that is our challenge. Let me say one other thing just about missions. We, uh, we have a lot of people, including myself, that are awfully interested in reaping, reaching the people groups around the world. But how is God going to reach China or the West Hebrides or Labrador? You know what the answer to that question is? Astonishingly enough, it's through us. To me, that's almost unthinkable, but it is the, mes- it is the method that God uses. The Christian message born by the church to the ends of the world in the might of the Holy Spirit. It is the message that people must be saved and that God has provided a means by which they can be saved. It is a message about all of his action, his supernatural action, his miraculous action that he has performed in Christ. I do not stand up here to tell you to pull yourself together because I know you can't. I do not stand up here and say, you know, um, you need to be good because I know you have no ability to be good. I don't stand up here and say, you need to gather yourself a whole bunch of philosophical books and read all, of the, all that you can about God so that you can figure it out. That's useless. The only message we have is the message that God has visited his people and redeemed them by Christ. But as glorious and as life-changing is that message... It will never convert China. It will never convert Germantown. Without fire. People uh, ask me frequently, they, uh, they say, um, where is your church? And I never answer them the way I want to answer them. Um, but I, that would really be kind of tacky of me, I guess. But... But uh, I know that's never stopped me before. But, um, um, but they say, where is your church? And I, what I normally say is, I say, well, do you know where Houston High School is? He says, oh, yeah. No. Well, we're right across the street from Houston High School. Oh, thanks. I was on the Stairmaster the other day. And 
lady said, where's your church? I hope you're here. We're, I told you we were right off from using high school. But this is the way I want to answer. I don't ever answer this way, but this is what, where's my church? Well, it depends on what time of day it is. Uh, if it's 10 a.m. on a weekday, they're probably in the kitchen or in the car or in the cockpit or in the classroom or in the office. If it's 2 a.m., my church is probably in bed or in a cockpit. But ladies and gentlemen, the point I'm making is you who comprise the church, who have been born of the Spirit and brought, bought by the blood of Christ and indwelt by that Spirit, you, you, you alone are the church of Jesus Christ. Not this building. And my brother and sister in Christ, we've got a job to do. And if it is to be done in the might of the Holy Spirit, we will be used to advance the kingdom of Christ. If it is not done in his power, then you and I can have lengthy, profitable discussions about the color of the carpet. One quick thing, a couple of lessons I want to leave behind. Gang, what I'm trying to do this morning is simply underscore where the real battle must be fought. Knowing what I have just said to you, and I hope believing it and agreeing with it, then there must be among us a deep sense of dependence. There must be this corporate, congregational shattering of our pride. And we must all understand that what this event teaches us is that our sufficiency is in God and God only. Secondly, for every faithful brother and sister here, there are going to be those Pentecostal periods in your life. And it will always come suddenly. It will come at, 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 at His appointed time, at his, the time of His choosing. But while we wait, ladies and gentlemen... Do this. First of all, examine your motives. Is it power that you want for power's sake? It will never come. It is only power for witness sake, ladies and gentlemen. Secondly, the Bible teaches that he grants in Acts chapter 5 verse 32, he gives the Holy Spirit to those who obey. It is the obedient, ladies and gentlemen. And then finally, pray. If you want to do anything that will advance the kingdom, pray. Thomas Goodwin used to say, sue God for it. Pray. Plead with Him that He will fill us all. Because with Him, we can do everything. Without Him. We can do nothing. Let's pray together. Our Father, I do pray that your people will hear the great importance, not of what I have said, but what you have said and demonstrated in Acts chapter 2. And I pray, O oh God, that you will use what this word, what this what your word has said 
to so empower your people and encourage them to be about the business of pursuing Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. Father, for those who have come here today and have not yet met the Savior, might they meet Him in all of His beauty, in all of His glory. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.